Welcome to the Matt Lupu Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lupu. What is the future of classics? If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that there are several problems facing the field at the moment. Many of these problems are reflective of broader problems facing the university as a whole. Some other problems are peculiar to the field of classics in general, and still others are special problems reserved for us studying classics in the United States in particular. It seems to me that while all of the problems facing the classics are important, they're not all equally so. I think that these different problems can be rank-ordered in terms of how dangerous they are to the field. For example, while I certainly think that the problem of epistemology is a big one, and you can listen to episode 5 to hear me make that argument if you haven't already, that problem is not existential. So what exactly is the biggest, most pressing existential problem that we face right now? In my humble opinion, the answer to that question is the problem of outreach. It is the single most important problem facing the field at the moment because all other problems we face flow directly from that one. The simple fact is that most people don't know what the classics is. Imagine that there's a lonely cabin out in the very northern reaches of Alaska. It's so remote that there's only two people alive who know where it is. Now imagine that the cabin accidentally burns down one winter night. Who cares? Well, you have to know that the cabin exists in the first place. So the only people who could possibly care are those two people. That's the classics right now. Let me put this another way. I took Latin in high school, and I didn't know what the classics was until I was in my 30s. There was no classics major for me to pursue in college. Even if there had been a classics department at my university, I don't think I would have known how to find it, or that I should be looking for it in the first place. And, at least in theory, I probably should have been. You see, there was an almost total disconnect between my high school Latin and the broader world of the classics. Learning Latin does not ensure a student is exposed to Roman history, archaeology, or civilization. Oftentimes, Latin classes geared for high school students will contain a heavy mythology component and, if the students are lucky, a culture component. The amount of myth and culture high school Latin students are exposed to seems to be directly correlated to whichever textbooks they are using in their Latin class, and of course the skill of their Latin teacher. Many high school Latin teachers have a master's degree in classics, but that is by no means a universal requirement. Depending on the skill of the teacher, the quality of their textbooks, and various other factors like how many other schools nearby offer Latin, or participation in local chapters of national high school Latin organizations, students may be left with a better or worse understanding of Latin's place in the greater classical tradition. I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that Latin instruction at the middle or high school level does not necessarily serve as a gateway to the broader world of the classics. Now, don't get me wrong here. 
given how dire the situation is right now, I would be happy for a much broader adoption of a subpar Latin curriculum, that is to say, one that didn't serve as a gateway, as opposed to no Latin curriculum at all. That's because the situation we have right now is one in which a very small group of high school students get exposure to any of this, which renders it all a virtual secret. How small exactly is the high school Latin student population in the United States? The numbers are hard to come by. One way to estimate how many students are learning Latin in the U.S. right now is by looking at the number of high school students taking the National Latin Exam and the Advanced Placement Latin Exam. For those unfamiliar, the National Latin Exam is designed for middle and high school students. It tests knowledge of Latin grammar as well as mythology, history, and culture at a variety of levels, from absolute beginner to quite advanced. Mostly, the National Latin Exam exists to give students some independent credentials testifying to their classics knowledge before they get to the undergraduate level. The Advanced Placement Latin Exam, on the other hand, is an exam given to high schoolers which promises college credit in exchange for a high exam score. Both exams have traditionally been staples of the pre-collegiate classics experience in the United States. So, by analyzing the number of test takers in any given year, we can develop at least a rough estimate of the number of Latin students nationwide, with the caveat that not every single high school Latin student takes them. So, let's dig in. On average, about 6,000 students take the AP Latin exam per year for the last two or three years. That's not very many. It doesn't look good for the National Latin Exam either. In 2018, 131,787 students took the National Latin Exam. In 2021, that number fell to 79,627, a decline of 40%. Granted, that time covers the COVID-19 pandemic, so it could be because of school closure, etc., but when we go back to the oldest numbers currently available on the NLE website, which covers 2009 through the present, you still find a story of steady decline. For example, the most popular year for students taking the NLE was 2016, when 142,271 students took it. That number has fallen every year since, even before the pandemic. And when you compare the number of NLE exams to the total number of kids learning a foreign language, any foreign language, you find that even in its most popular year, the number of Latin students is vanishingly small. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, 88.5% of high school students take a foreign language class. The majority of those students, just over half, take Spanish. Now let's do math. I promise it won't hurt. In 2020, there were about 53.8 million total K-12 students in both public and private schools in the United States. Using the NLE numbers, you can divide the number of NLE exams for a year by the total number of students, and it looks like 2.6% of the American student body had Latin. That's not much. And it's even worse when we compare it with classics engagement in another country. For the sake of argument, I picked Italy. About 33% of K-12 students study Latin there. So, it seems clear that Latin, which is just one sliver of what the classics really is, is not doing well in American education. 
Therefore, if we're relying on high school Latin to act as a kind of gateway drug to get people interested in the classics, then the project is a failure. Very well, you might say. This is America, after all. Perhaps the poor numbers reflect a general lack of interest in the market. Maybe this is a supply and demand type situation, and since there just isn't any demand, there's a correspondingly short supply of Latin. Luckily for us, there's a great way to test that idea. If there was indeed no general interest in the world of classical antiquity, then there should be no market for media featuring the world of classical antiquity. But that just feels wrong on the face of it, since there are in fact plenty of media featuring the classics. There's TV shows, movies, books, video games. Not only ones made recently, but even historically. Take movies, for example. There were movies about ancient Rome in the silent era of film. The same is true about historical fiction set in the Roman world. Ben-Hur, a movie most people are familiar with, even if they've never sat through the whole thing, was originally published as a novel in 1880 by the retired Civil War general Lew Wallace. It was adapted for film twice, once in 1925, and perhaps more famously again in 1959, starring Charlton Heston. You might be tempted at this point to argue that, of course there were plenty of classics-themed works of popular art and entertainment in the 19th and 20th centuries, but that number has fallen in the 21st century, as people generally lose interest in the classics. But you would be wrong. As technology has progressed and developed, there came whole new types of popular media, and they keep making classics content for them. I'm referring, of course, to video games. There are video games of all kinds, from role-playing to strategy, that deal with classics. In fact, when I think about it, one of my first major exposures to the world of late antiquity came from playing Age of Empires II in the late 90s. I remember vividly, as I sat reading the description of the Byzantine civilization, that this civilization was in fact the medieval Roman Empire. Medieval Roman Empire? Was this fantasy I was reading, or was it real? As it turns out, it was real, and I learned it from a video game. The trend of classical themes in video games only intensified over the last 20 plus years. I have had students in the past come up to me after a lecture asking me incredibly detailed questions about Roman military equipment that I know virtually nothing about because the student used to play Rome Total War as a kid. Anyone who has taught Greek history of late will surely have had similar experiences with Assassin's Creed Odyssey, a video game set in ancient Greece that was released in 2018. For those of you unfamiliar with it, it's kind of an action role-playing game that allows the player to inhabit Athens as it would have appeared during the Peloponnesian War in the 5th century BC. Now let's compare the number of Latin students taking the NLE to the number of copies that Assassin's Creed Odyssey sold. Assassin's Creed Odyssey sold 10 million copies, which is about 10 times more than students who took the NLE. How many kids played that video game and then decided that they wanted to learn more about Greek history? I don't have numbers to answer that question, but I would guess that the answer is many more than the total number of students currently taking Latin. And if I'm totally honest with you all right now, I've never even played the damn game. Still in all, 
I can see that there's something special about Assassin's Creed. If you asked me what the best way would be to educate the greatest number of people about the Peloponnesian War, I don't think I could come up with a more effective way than doing it other than a video game. And the thing that's crazy to me is that they took the time to make it historically accurate. They hired a classicist. She consulted through the whole project, and the game was better for it. It made it more immersive, more interesting to play. It's so interesting to play that when I went to write this episode, I actually sat down and watched all the cutscenes from it like it was a movie. Now, I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that just because a movie or a video game deals with the classics, that is inherently a good thing for the field. One reason that classicists might struggle to get involved with media is because that it could turn out horribly, for the classicists, mind you, not necessarily for the media itself. Gladiator, the film starring Russell Crowe, while visually appealing and entertaining, is so historically inaccurate that audiences certainly left the theater knowing scarcely anything more about real Roman history than when they walked in. Now, I have to restrain myself here. You see, I desperately want to go on a long diatribe about all of the inaccuracy to be found in Gladiator, if only because I've been studying the time period that the movie is set in for my PhD dissertation. But on the advice of people close to me, I will stay my hand. If this series gets any traction, I might start a Patreon and release episodes where I go into withering detail about how one movie or another gets it wrong from a historical perspective. Incidentally, if uh, you want me to do that, go ahead and leave a comment. And like and subscribe while you're at it. Anyway, I could go on about how Commodus was mishandled in the film, or how Russell Crowe's character didn't even exist, but I want to highlight how much more interesting his real story was. If Ridley Scott had included the very real episode of Commodus beating to death random people that he had kidnapped off the street in the arena, the movie would have been haunting and unforgettable. Joaquin Phoenix would have been recognized as one of Hollywood's most unforgettable villains and certainly won an Oscar. Or not. It's hard to make a movie. And even with all the inaccuracy, the movie was incredible. It was just as grand and spectacular as Spartacus and Ben-Hur. It fits right in with the so-called sword-and-sandal genre. Now imagine how the poor, long-suffering historical advisor to Gladiator feels. We actually don't have to imagine. This is what she told the New York Times just after the movie came out. Quote, Well... I was mightily vexed by all the distortions and inauthenticity. Hollywood, evidently, has more pressing priorities, such as cinematic dialogue with its own previous Roman epics. In a nutshell, Gladiator is spectacular entertainment, and as such, it has captured the public imagination. Let's hope the fans will be prompted to find out what ancient Rome was really about. End quote. What she's referring to here is that Hollywood thinks that every new Roman-themed movie or TV show must look like Spartacus or Ben-Hur. Otherwise, regular people won't understand what is going on. Let's think about that for a second. If that was true, then nobody would have played Assassin's Creed Odyssey. But lots of people played that game. 
That must mean that Hollywood is full of shit. I can forgive all the inaccuracy in movies like Gladiator or 300 or the HBO TV series Rome or Spartacus if the end result is that these movies spur an interest in the classics. I can also understand that academics take a risk in cooperating with media projects. Every time somebody does that, they're taking their career into their own hands. People are already petty and jealous without introducing fame and the potential for money into the equation. The audience of your peers is already primed not to like the fact that you're cooperating with a cool movie studio or game developer. And after it's all over, the project is a parody of your field? Well, forget it. That has a tremendous chilling effect. It makes people more reticent to do outreach, rightfully so. Another reason, at least I think, why classicists might not want to get involved in this kind of outreach is because from their point of view, there already is the best kind of outreach available. One that is invested with all the legitimacy and prestige that comes with all of our most ancient institutions. This type of public outreach, of course, is better known as the museum. Museums were initially designed to fulfill the exact purpose we've been talking about here. They were the place anyone could go to to see real proof of the past. In fact, human beings have taken an interest in this kind of thing for so long that the very concept of the museum predates classical antiquity. In fact, it's nearly as old as civilization itself. Since ancient people couldn't easily travel or see the broader world, powerful men like kings and wealthy private citizens would display their collections of curiosities in order to educate the general public and in the process amplify their own fame and glory. The education on offer in ancient museums was more often than not about the greatness of which empire housed the museum. This was certainly the case of the oldest museum that we know about, the Museum of Enigaldi Nana. That museum was established in roughly 530 BC in the Babylonian Empire. The only reason that we know about it is because archaeologists excavated the site. The excavators found artifacts of various dates, all buried in neat rows with clay cylinders next to each object. The cylinders were stamped with cuneiform descriptions written in three different languages describing what each artifact was. There was no other conclusion to draw from the physical evidence other than, this is an ancient museum. The very word museum is Greek, taken from the goddesses which were said to inspire mankind to make art, the muses. The original Greek museums were temples to these goddesses, but over the centuries the concept of the museum would change from a purely religious institution to one that was dedicated to the search for inspiration in study and the creation of knowledge. While the Museum of Enigaldinana very well might have served this exact purpose, we don't know for sure if it worked like the Museon in Alexandria. That institution is where the modern concept of the museum, along with the word itself, can be traced back to. If you've never heard of the Museon of Alexandria, then perhaps you will have heard of one of its more famous buildings, the Library of Alexandria. You heard that right. The library was only one part of a sprawling complex designed and built by Ptolemy I 
one of the generals that accompanied Alexander the Great on his conquest of the East, and later king of Egypt. You see, the Museon of the Ptolemies was much more than a building to house works of painting and sculpture. Other institutions, like the modern museum, did exist at the time, but the Museon of Alexandria functioned much more like a modern university than a modern art gallery. There were endowed chairs. How many, we don't quite know. But each one entitled its holder to free room and board and a retinue of servants to help with research. Scholars would have lived on the grounds, some for their whole life, and others for a more limited time. All of this would have been paid for out of the Egyptian treasury. It must have been quite a sight. As for the results of this project, they're still with us to this very day. From my classics nerd point of view, the biggest contribution might have been compiling the Homeric corpus. The texts of the Iliad and the Odyssey, as they exist right now, owe their lives to the Museon, where scholars and scribes collected and recorded the various myths of Achilles and Odysseus. Even by the time we're talking about here, these Bronze Age tales were difficult to understand, full, as they were, of archaic language that had long since fallen out of common use. Incidentally, this type of literary activity resulted in some of the very first Greek dictionaries that we know of. Now, it wasn't all literary research at the Museon. Eratosthenes of Cyrene famously used his endowed chair at the Museon to estimate the circumference of the Earth using nothing more than simple geometry and the length of shadows cast at solar noon in different Egyptian cities. It was his estimate of the Earth's circumference that Christopher Columbus would famously reject as he prepared to make his westward crossing of the Atlantic. By the 3rd century AD, the Museon of Alexandria would fall into disuse. With the decline of Roman control over the greater Mediterranean basin, institutions like the museum retreated in the West until the Renaissance, when wealthy patrons of history and the arts resurrected the practice of displaying curiosities for the general public. These more modern museums were the product of popes and other wealthy private citizens and included some very famous sites like the Vatican Museum or the Capitoline Museums in Rome. Our modern museums are largely descendants of those Renaissance-era enterprises run by the popes. When they were first opened, the very first modern museums were wildly successful because they were the only game in town. That remained the status quo up until very recently. If one wanted to see and appreciate an example of Roman sculpture, there was no other option than to go see it in person in a museum, at least in the beginning. This would all change as print and photography became ubiquitous, and of course, it would irrevocably change in the age of the internet. Now one must ask, why even go to the museum when I can see nearly perfect facsimiles of the artifacts in VR or on Google Images? And furthermore, in comparison to movies and video games, museums are boring. I don't want to sound like a bad classicist here, but even I, a person who should love museums more so than the average, can find myself bored to tears in a badly designed museum. You might be asking yourself, what do you mean by badly designed? What I mean is that many museums 
are nothing more than a series of objects with two to three sentences beneath each one in seemingly endless rows behind glass. If you're lucky, you'll get a plaque at the front of the room that gives a little context for the collection within. If the objects in the museum are famous enough, you don't really need to do anything more than that. But if the objects are random lumps of pottery and metalwork from the Bronze Age, they can be quite underwhelming, leaving the average museum visitor asking, so what? Most honest museum curators know this and have taken steps to augment collections with things like audio tours or guided tours with relevant experts. But those things cost extra money and are of uneven quality. I've shelled out the cash for the self-guided audio tour on numerous occasions, only to be disappointed by the relative lack of detail and context given to whatever collection I'm looking at. I've also never had it explained to me inside a museum exactly what the process was to get the objects from out of the ground to behind the glass, let alone how I could get involved in that process. But why not? Here's my modest proposal. Imagine walking into a museum and being greeted with an exhibit that details the journey of the objects inside through space and time from their initial find to the place they sit in front of you. Let's say you're standing in front of a nondescript Roman amphora. There are literally thousands of examples of them, and, to put it bluntly, if you've seen one, you've sort of seen them all. Instead of a simple plaque that reads, Roman amphora circa 100 CE, you're presented with pictures of the archaeologists handling the artifact the day they pulled it out of the ground. There's copies of the notes made by the site supervisor from the day of discovery, followed by pictures and notes from the conservation team that cleaned it. Your eyes drift to a large reproduction of a page from a typology of Roman amphora, with a short description of how amphora forms were categorized and eventually adopted by Roman archaeologists. Maybe the last thing you see is a picture of the site that the amphora was recovered from, as it looks today, in the form of a maintained archaeological park, or better yet, a site still under active excavation, followed by an invitation to come and visit. Or maybe the object we're looking at is a piece of sculpture that used to adorn a wealthy nobleman's study. Think Lord Elgin from episode 3. What if we had a long list of the chain of custody from the year it was first acquired, say back in the 16th century, up until the day it was put in the museum. Knowing that these objects had a life before they were put behind glass might make the difference between a sterile, boring museum visit and an inspiring one. If I had seen anything like the examples above when I was 18 years old, I think my whole life might have been different. Is it really as simple as that? I don't know. Museums, for all the good that they do, and all the good that they still could do, are only able to reach the people that walk through the door. Given how dire the situation is for classics in America, I think we need something decidedly more aggressive. Maybe the answer is that those of us in the field should strive to do more media, more outreach, write more books, make more podcasts, and make it all accessible to the average audience. In many ways, there is much to be optimistic about on this point. YouTube for all its problems, represents an incredible opportunity for the field. If you want, when you're done listening to this podcast, hop onto YouTube and search for Told in Stone. 
That channel is run by Dr. Garrett Ryan, a PhD classicist who has moved from academia into media as a full-time pursuit. He has written at least one book about the Roman world, and his YouTube channel is full of excellent, well-presented information. And he's not alone. There's also Imperium Romanum, a channel run by a group of historical reenactors based in the Netherlands who have partnered with Erve Eme, which is kind of like the Roman version of Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia. It's a living history museum built to resemble what a Roman-era village on the edge of the Roman Empire would have looked like. The buildings were built using period-accurate materials and techniques based on what was found in the local archaeological record. The reenactors are dressed in the typical costume, much like one would find in living history museums around the world. What better way could this small living history museum carry its message to as wide an audience as possible than by partnering with filmmakers who want to make content for YouTube? As of the writing of this episode, Imperium Romanum has only nine videos published to their channel, but they have 27,000 subscribers. I don't know how many people visit Erva Eme every year, but I would be surprised if it were more than the number of subscribers that the YouTube channel has. Told in Stone, just in case you were wondering, has 197,000 subscribers. If the professional pursuit of classics is going to continue, we need outreach. It probably should be done by professionals who know what they're talking about, and the material that they produce should be inspiring and accurate. It's up to us to do it. If we don't, well, I guess the classics survived the destruction of the Library of Alexandria, too. Hmm. You've been listening to the Matt Lupu Podcast. Thanks for listening. 